This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, and welcome to Tiny Vampires, a podcast about disease, science, and blood-sucking insects, and a member of the Agora Podcast Network. This is episode 10. Can West Nile be transmitted from a human to a mosquito? I'm Raven, Forrest Frisgelto, your host. A quick public health side note first. In the past few months, there have been quite a few natural disasters. Most recently, the third earthquake in Mexico and the near-total destruction of Puerto Rico by Hurricane Maria. The CDC has been posting a lot of helpful information on their website and Facebook about how to clean up and recover safely. Much of the human toll from disasters happens after the destruction, when people don't have access to clean water, are spending more time exposed to the elements, and are working with heavy equipment. I know that in a lot of these areas, they don't have internet connection, but for those that do, it's an excellent resource. Here at the University of Notre Dame, we have been thinking a lot about the victims, and our hearts are with them. Today's topic was sent in by Kim Cook, she asked me if once a person is infected with West Nile virus, if they can then pass it on to a mosquito. Let's start off with going over what West Nile is. It's only been in North America since 1999 and can be found in Australia, Europe, the Middle East, and India. It is transmitted primarily by Culex mosquitoes and is a zoonotic disease, meaning that it is an animal disease that can infect humans. Typically, it infects wild songbirds and can kill them. This is why a lot of public health groups collect wild birds that are found dead that have no obvious signs of injury. Culex mosquitoes prefer birds and pass the virus from bird to bird as they feed. Sometimes, a culex can't find a bird to feed from, and so it bites a person or a horse. Even though the virus is in a person or a horse instead of a bird, it can still survive well enough to make them sick or even kill them. West Nile is similar to other viruses that mosquitoes transmit. 
in that many people who are infected never have symptoms, and those that do only have flu-like symptoms, with a rare few becoming seriously ill. Like the other viruses in its family, West Nile can cause encephalitis, a swelling of the brain, or meningitis, a swelling of the lining surrounding the brain and the spinal cord. Both of these conditions can be fatal. These other viruses are ones you may have heard of, like Japanese encephalitis, Eastern Equine encephalitis, and St. Louis encephalitis. So, to Kim's question, we know that mosquitoes can pick up West Nile virus from feeding on an infected bird, but can an uninfected Culex pick up the virus from an infected person and then transmit it to another person? You all are really challenging my library skills lately with these questions. The answer was easy enough to find, but the paper describing exactly how we figured this out was not. That's because the work was published by a group led by Nathan Goldblum in Israel back in 1957. Their paper was titled, Virological Findings and Development of Homologous and Heterologous Antibodies in West Nile Infection in Man. The key to answering the question is knowing the level of virus present in an infected person's blood. This is called viremia. If the levels of virus are low, the chances of a Culex mosquito picking it up in the drop of blood that they take is very small. To determine West Nile virus patients' viremia, Goldblum's team took advantage of two outbreaks that happened in 1953 and 1954 to study the virus, hoping to contribute to better prevention and treatment for future infections. The outbreaks gave them three advantages that they wouldn't have had if they were studying the rare infection here and there. First, many people became ill, which meant that the researchers could see the viral load not just of one or two people, but many. This would give them a more accurate average. Second, they could track these patients and obtain blood samples from them over time to determine when the highest viremia occurred and how long the patient's immune system was reacting to the virus. Third, it gave the researchers a chance to pick from people for the study that then moved away from the area that had an active outbreak. This is important because the researchers were looking at virus level and immune reaction over time. If the patients were infected again, this would not only be terrible for the patient, but would alter the amount of virus in their blood. Goldblum and their colleagues took blood samples from patients the day they started showing symptoms. Then again, once every day for six days. Then every few months after that. They tested this blood in three ways. One, to tell them how much virus was in each sample, and one test each for two different types of immune responses. To determine viral levels in blood samples, the red blood cells were removed to leave the fluid that the cells are suspended in behind. This fluid is called serum. Dilutions of serum were made, one part of the patient's serum to 10 parts virus-free serum, then 1 to 100, then 1 to 1,000. These mixtures were injected into laboratory mice which were closely monitored to see if they developed symptoms. By this method, they could determine the dose that caused 50% of the mice to get sick. We call this ID50, 
for infectious dose 50, the 50 standing for the 50% of mice. The dilutions that gave them this result is compared to known quantities of virus that had the same result. If you're an animal lover like me, don't worry. This was the way they did things back in the 50s, but it's not today. If I were to need the same information, I would use molecular biology techniques that can give us more accurate information without the use of experimental animals. What Goldblum et al. found was that the highest levels of virus in the blood occurred the first day of symptoms. After that, the body's immune system reduced the viral numbers over the next six days. After experiments conducted with mosquitoes, we now know that even at the height of infection, the patient's viremia is not enough to infect a disease-free mosquito. Later, similar work to Goldblum's was conducted on horses with the same result. So, we now know that both horses and humans are dead ends for the West Nile virus, which is why they are called dead-end hosts. We've answered Kim's question now, but we still have time, so let's go back and rejoin Goldblum. Back to the other two tests the researchers were running on the patient's blood. These were to determine the levels and length of time the immune system was responding. When a person gets sick from a pathogen like West Nile, the body produces antibodies. They are like glue that binds to the outside of the pathogen. Antibodies can be very specific to a particular pathogen. So it doesn't matter how much flu antibodies you have, it's not going to stick to the outside of the West Nile virus. Goldblum was chiefly interested in two different types of antibodies, neutralizing and complement fixing. Neutralizing antibodies are fairly easy to explain. They stick to the outside of the virus on the part that attaches to the cells the virus wants to infect. Because the virus can't dock to the host cell, it is neutralized thus cannot cause disease. The way we determine the amount of these antibodies in the blood is by mixing serum with the virus and then running it over petri dishes of healthy cells. The more damage that's done to these healthy cells, the fewer neutralizing antibodies the patient had in their blood. Finally, they determined the amount of complement-fixing antibodies. These antibodies glue onto the virus just like the others, but they work like double-sided sticky tape. They stick to the pathogen on one side, and a protein called complement on the other. Complement chops up whatever pathogen is stuck to the other side of the antibody. But otherwise, they float around in the blood without affecting anything. To determine the levels of complement-fixing antibodies the patients were producing, they conducted a test called complement fixation test. This system is pretty ingenious and takes advantage of the fact that even though antibodies are very specific, complement is not. It will chop up anything that's on the other side of the antibody. The first step is to heat up the patient's serum. This removes any complement. Then a known amount of complement and virus are added. Each person has a slightly different amount of complement, so this standardizes the test. If a patient has antibodies to West Nile, they glue to the virus on one side and the complement on the other. If they don't, the complement and the virus float free, 
because there's nothing to hold them together. Now, here's where the genius happens. Sheep red blood cells and complement-fixing antibodies that are specialized to stick to sheep red blood cells are added. Once they are introduced to each other, the red blood cells and antibodies stick together and wait for the complement to stick to the other side and chop up the red blood cell. But the complement will only be available if it's not already stuck to the West Nile virus. So, a sample with antibodies to West Nile will have a clump of intact red blood cells at the bottom of the tube. And if the sample doesn't have West Nile antibodies, then the serum will turn pink from all of the chopped up red blood cells. The reason our researchers needed these three groups of information, viremia, the number of neutralizing antibodies, and the number of complement-fixing antibodies, was to tell them how much virus the patients had in their bloodstream over the course of their illness, how effectively their body was fighting off that virus, and how long their bodies were remain prepared to fight it. Like I said, they found that the amount of virus peaked the first day of illness. The complement-fixing antibodies produced the complement-fixing antibody production of the patients peaked at two to three weeks after the first day they were sick, stayed high for a few months. Then, by the one-year anniversary of their illness, the number of complement-fixing antibodies had dropped down again. On the other hand, the neutralizing antibodies didn't even show up in the patient's blood at all until two to three months after they became sick and then remained high for the rest of the study, which went out to two and a half years. Goldblum et al.'s work was likely funded by their national public health organization, but this is just a guess, because back in the 50s, they didn't seem to be too good at reporting who paid for their research. On the podcast side of things, uh, great news, Tiny Vampires Espanol is up and running and is syndicated through all of the same podcast apps as the original. So please spread the word. Tiny Vampires English also has some good things going. We are the Agora Podcast of the Month for the month of September. That means that some of you are joining for the first time after a recommendation from Friday 15, Mid-Atlantic, the History of England, or any of the other network shows. So thank you so much for giving me a try. A few months ago, I had a review writing contest for a Tiny Vampires t-shirt. By popular demand, these t-shirts will go on sale just as soon as I figure out how to sell them on our website. A final note, and it's a fun one. Agora members are going to be creating special Halloween episodes for the month of October on the Agora podcast. It is the second year we are creating these scary, spooky, or creepy stories for our project that we call Agoraphobia. You'll have to listen to all of them and see which gives you the most chills, and then let me know. I'm really excited to share my gory and scientifically inspired tale. For the regular October episode, we're going to be talking about a very fundamental question. Why do mosquitoes need blood? This question came to me during the March of Science from a boy named Thomas. Kids always come up with the best questions. I hope that you found and continue to find this podcast informative. I would consider it a great personal favor if you would rate and review this show. 
You might not know this, but each region of the globe has their own iTunes, which means that you could be the first in your region to write a review. I'm looking at you, Australia. I read every single one, and the feedback helps me to know what you guys like. Don't forget to visit the website for videos explaining how some of these lab techniques that we talked about in the episode today work on a more visual basis, uh, show notes, music credits, and more. As always, if you have any arthropod or disease questions you would like to be the topic of a future episode, or if you have corrections, please send them through Tiny Vampire's blog on the contact page or the Facebook page. Thank you for listening. From me, Raven Forrest Ruscalzo, PhD student at the University of Notre Dame and funded by the National Science Foundation. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com.